Hello, Christ community. Glad all of you are here. Greetings to our 15th Street campus and our West campus and our traditions venue, as well as our friends in LaSalle. Great to be here with you all. We had a, a really fun celebration last weekend. Last weekend was our two-year weekend was our two-year anniversary of our For the City and Beyond vision. So we told lots of stories and gave some updates with regard to um, just how God is using that vision to change people's stories. So if you missed last week, I encourage you to check it out on our app or go on our website. And I encourage you to watch the video if you're able to watch the entire video because we had a cool video uh, montage kind of summary at the end of the message that I think you will really enjoy. We also have a postcard we handed out last week. But we have more of them available. A postcard that has just a number of uh, updates on it um, and as well as an update on the West Campus. And so you can pick those up in the lobby um, area. I encourage you to pick up one of those um, after the, the services today. Um, one other thing I want to mention, um, you may notice a police presence um, in our building during our services, and uh, that is not due to a specific threat. Um, we're just wanting to continue to improve our level of security in light of recent events, and so that's why um, the law enforcement people are here at our services. Just wanted to let you know about that. Okay, if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 17. We are, we're doing a verse-by-verse -verse journey through this amazing book, which is an eyewitness-based account of Jesus' life and ministry. Now, just so you know, um, sometimes for those of you who are very linear, um, sometimes I need to let you know, because of holidays and everything, we're, we're jumping around a little bit in the book of Luke. We're going to hit every verse, but we're jumping around. So on Palm Sunday, we're going to, uh, in a couple weeks, we're going to jump to that passage in Luke. And then last Thanksgiving weekend, Pastor Stetson taught on Luke 17, 11 to 19, because that had to do with, with gratitude. And so today, that's why we find ourselves in verse 20 of Luke 17. We're not skipping the previous, we've already dealt with it. So in verse 20, um, the Pharisees, i.e. the religious leaders, ask Jesus a question. And that question, the question they ask, opens a door for Jesus to do an extensive teaching on a very important theme in his ministry. And that theme is the kingdom of God. Jesus was constantly talking about and teaching about and demonstrating the reality of the kingdom of God. So what is it exactly? What is the kingdom of God? Well, the idea of the kingdom of God is this reality where God is king. It's this reality where he is Lord, where his power and his rule and his authority are being fully manifest. That's the kingdom of God. It's where God is king. And Jesus' entire ministry is about this. He taught about the kingdom of God. He demonstrated the kingdom of God, which means that if we want to experience all that Jesus has for us in this life and in the life to come, we, we need to understand this concept. We need to understand this reality. Now, the phrase that we've been using in this particular teaching series is the upside down kingdom. And um, if you have, if you're into stranger things on Netflix, that phrase may, you know, creep you out a little bit, may bring some creepy images to mind. But for Jesus, the upside down kingdom of God is anything but creepy. In fact, I think a more accurate parallel is the movie The Matrix, where Keanu Reeves is given this choice of pills to take. And one pill will open his eyes to a realm that is very 
much all around him, but he hasn't been aware of it. And the other pill will just take him back to life as usual. As usual. And in a very real sense, Jesus' teaching on the kingdom presents us with a similar choice. Will we live our lives with an awareness of and an attentiveness to the activity and the expectation of the kingdom of God all around us? Or will we just settle into a day-to-day experience where the kingdom of God has no real impact in our lives? Which pill do we want to take? What kind of life do we want to experience? Now, in order to help us experience the reality of the kingdom, Jesus articulates in this passage two crucial truths regarding the kingdom of God, and both are critically important for us to understand and embrace. The first truth Jesus declares in this passage is this. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. In Luke 17, verse 20, we read these words. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Okay, so so the religious leaders come up to Jesus and they ask him a question about the kingdom of God. When will the kingdom of God come? Now, what this question tells us is that the Jewish leaders were well aware of this concept of the kingdom of God. That they were longing for the day when God would establish his rule and his reign on earth. There were plenty and are plenty of Old Testament passages that talk about this. But there was a problem. There was a deficiency in how the Pharisees and how the religious leaders, there was a deficiency in how they understood the kingdom of God. See, for them, the kingdom of God was all about the overthrow of the Roman government. So they envisioned God's kingdom being a political kingdom where where their enemies and their oppressors would be overthrown and Israel would once again be a sovereign nation. So in answer to their question about the kingdom of God, Jesus says, look, guys, the kingdom of God is not about what you think it's about. It's not about this event or or the overthrow of government. Well, what is it about then? Well, Jesus says in verse 21, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He is completely flipping their paradigm for what they think the kingdom of God is all about. See, they think the kingdom of God is all about an event. But Jesus is saying, no, it's about a person. It's about a person. See, in order for there to be a kingdom, there has to be a king, right? And that king, Jesus is saying, that king is among you. I'm that king. In other words, where Jesus is, that's where the kingdom of God is. Where Jesus is, that's where the kingdom is. And then this is why Jesus did things like healing people and casting demons out of people and calming the waves, you know, in the midst of a storm. These things were and are a demonstration of the fact that Jesus is king over disease. He is king over the demonic. He is king over creation. See, what the Pharisees needed to understand is that the kingdom of God has come to earth because the king has come to earth. The kingdom of God is there in their midst because the king is in their midst. 
See, again, where, where Jesus is, that's where the kingdom is. Where Jesus is, that's where the kingdom is. <clears throat> so think about the implications of this for us. If you've placed your trust in Jesus for salvation, if you've placed your trust in him, the very presence of Jesus lives in you through his spirit. The king lives in you. Not Elvis, Jesus, okay? The king lives in you. The very power and presence of the king of creation lives in you. In other words, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is within you because Jesus, the king, is within you. Now, what, what a radical and awesome and life-changing reality. See, we don't have to talk about the kingdom being limited to some event in the future, nor do, do we need to envision the kingdom of God as being this, this distant reality, you know, somewhere near Jupiter, you know, the kingdom of God is just kind of out there. No, 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 no. The, 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 his kingdom is here. His kingdom is within us. Because Jesus, the King, is within us. In other words, we are, we are carriers of the kingdom of God wherever we go. We are carriers of the kingdom of God wherever we go. In your school, in your workplace, in your family, hanging out with friends, playing on the golf course, whatever. You have within you the very presence and power of the kingdom of God. Because you have within you the King. He, Jesus, lives in you. Now, this gets back to the matrix question, right? Which reality do you want to live in? Which reality do you want to live in? The reality of the kingdom of the world, just kind of going with the flow, you know, pursuing what the world is pursuing. I mean, everybody's doing that. Everybody's doing that. Is that what you want? Or do you long for the reality of the kingdom of God here and now, the very life of Jesus flowing in you and through you in any and every situation and circumstance. Which pill do you want to take? Which pill do you want to take? Which reality do you want to live in? See, that's the question Jesus is asking the Pharisees here, and he's asking us as well. Which reality do you want to live in? The choice is yours. Are you living in the reality of the kingdom of God being here? Are we living in that reality? Now, this is not only, this is not the only kingdom of God truth that Jesus wants to, us to embrace. So at this point in the passage, Jesus, he's been talking to the Pharisees in answer to their question. And then he turns to his disciples with another very important teaching or reality about the kingdom. See, it's not just that the kingdom of God is here. It's also that the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. So verse 22, then he said to his disciples, so he turns to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the son of man, but you will not see it. Now, what is Jesus saying here? He is describing the reality of disappointment and yearning that we as believers experience in this life when we long for things to happen and they're not happening. 
He's acknowledging this. You long, you know, the time is coming when you'll long to see the days of the Son of Man. He says there there are going to be many times when we long for those days. We long for the days of the Son of Man. We long for that to come. So what is he talking about? What does this mean, this Son of Man thing? What does this mean? Well, the title Son of Man comes from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And in chapter 7, Daniel sees this vision of God, whom he refers to as the Ancient of Days. So he sees this vision of God on the throne, right? The ancient of days sitting on his throne. And look at what happens next here. Daniel 7, verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, God. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, what an amazing passage, which describes Jesus the Messiah, the Son of Man, approaching the throne of God and being given by God. You can see this again in the book of Revelation. Similar thing happening, Revelation 4 and 5. But in there, he's the Lamb of God. But, but Jesus is the Lamb of God. But here we see the Son of Man, the Messiah, approaching the throne of God. And God gives the Son of Man all authority and all power. He gives him this. He bestows upon him this kingdom that will not be destroyed. Okay, so what Daniel is describing is exactly what Jesus describes later in this chapter in verse 30 30 of chapter 17 when he says, it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Very significant to refer to himself as the Son of Man. Both Daniel and Jesus describe this day that is coming. It's sometimes referred to in scripture as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And on that day, God's kingdom will be fully established and every nation and people will worship Jesus, the king. So is the kingdom of God here or is it coming? Yes. Yes, both of those are true. We live in this time period between the first coming of the kingdom and the second coming of his kingdom. And so so in this season that we're in right now. We're in between the two. And so in this season, we see and experience very real glimpses of the kingdom of Jesus being in us, you know, doing miracles and bringing life and healing and hope, all these cool things. But this kingdom is not fully here. So right along with the miracles, we see and experience tragedy and difficulty and hardship and pain. There are so many people in my circle of relationships right now that are experiencing incredible hardship and difficulty. Some are are battling diseases like cancer or MS or lupus. Others are wrestling with depression or anxiety or they have children wrestling with some of those things. Uh, Others are battling just, just 
wrestling with traumatic injuries that have resulted in significant disability and, and challenge. And then I, then I think of, of my friends, our friends as a church in, in the Middle East, in a particular country in the Middle East, they daily, they daily face the, the threat of death or bombing. One particular church, the pastor that I, I know personally, many of you know, two or three people have recently died just in church bombings. And that's happening because they're followers of Jesus. So, I mean, this is, this is our reality, right? This is the world we live in. This is our reality here and now. I mean, life is hard. It is hard. And some of you, many of you can share a story, what you're going through right now. I mean, life is hard. Now, some people will look at this situation and say, how can you believe in God? How can you believe in a God with all this pain and unanswered prayer? Well, Jesus answers that question for us here. The presence of these difficulties does not mean that God doesn't exist. Rather, it means that God's kingdom is not fully here yet. It doesn't mean God doesn't exist. It just means that his kingdom is not fully here yet. Because when God's kingdom fully comes, wrongs will be made right. Injustices will be dealt with. Uh, restoration will happen, right? Amazing things will happen when the kingdom of God fully comes. In fact, the very things that Jesus did in his time on earth, at a, in a, you know, in a limited amount, because he was here for a limited amount during his, his first stay on earth, those things will be fully realized when he comes again. Healing and wholeness will be fully realized when he comes again. As Jesus acknowledges in verse 22, we long for that day, don't we? He says, well, you, you will long for the day, days of the Son of Man. We long for that day. Our hearts yearn for that day when these painful challenges will be a distant memory. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. So how are we to live in, the, in this in-between time when we know the kingdom is not fully here, but it's coming, right? How do we live in this in-between time? Well, that's the question Jesus spends the rest of the chapter answering for us. There are three specific things that he warns us about in this in-between time. First warning to us, don't be distracted by messianic claims. Don't be distracted by messianic claims. Look at verse 22. The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after, off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Okay, so Jesus is warning us that there will be people who will make claims that the kingdom of God has fully come or that Jesus has already returned. And let me just tell you, if someone tells you that Jesus is living on a commune in Florida, don't book plane tickets, okay? Do not book plane tickets. Now, now there's another aspect of this warning that I think is far more applicable to us today, and that has to do with those who make specific predictions about when Jesus will return. See, I put those people in a similar category as being an unhelpful distraction, 
One of the books that I have on my bookshelf, um, that I keep on my bookshelf, I'll tell you why in a minute, but it's entitled 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Again in 1988. Um, It was the rage back in 1988. Um, Someone gave me a copy. I was in seminary at the time. Someone gave me a copy, um, even though I really wasn't buying this guy's argument, but I had a copy. And I keep that book on my bookshelf as a testament to me of 88 reasons why we shouldn't try and figure out when Jesus is returning. Every few years, and it just happened last fall, it's always around October, September, October, but uh, every few years, um, including this past year, there's some self-appointed Bible expert um, claiming to know when Jesus is coming, that they've discovered some secret code in the Bible or whatever. It's just hogwash, folks. It is hogwash. Jesus told us we wouldn't know when he would return. So why do people obsess about predicting when? I don't get it. And even more baffling to me is why do Christians keep buying this stuff? Why do they keep falling for this stuff? Why do they keep buying these books when there's a new prediction every time they come out with a new prediction? Jesus says, you won't know. You won't know. And you don't need to obsess about it. You won't know. Just be ready, basically, is his message. But Jesus says, when you hear claims that about my coming, you know, that I've already come or whatever, don't run after those things. Because the reality is, this is what he says here, you're going to know. <laughs> you're going to know when I come. You're going to know. It will be obvious to everyone. Jesus describes it here in verse 24 as being like lightning flashing from one end of the sky to the other. That's something that all of us would notice, right? Lightning flashing from one end of the sky to the other. So Jesus is saying, don't worry about it happening without you knowing about it because you will know about it. You will know when it happens. You'll notice it when it happens. Second warning Jesus gives to his followers regarding his his coming kingdom. Don't be lulled to sleep by the routine of life. Don't be lulled to sleep by the routine of life. So look with me at the next verses here. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Now, Jesus gives two real-life examples to make his point. So the first example is the example of Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, we read about how God was grieved by all the evil and the violence and the wickedness that humans were inflicting on his creation. So he decided to destroy humanity through a flood, except for a man named Noah, a righteous man named Noah and his family. God told Noah to build an ark, which he did. And his his family was rescued from the flood. So Jesus uses this example of Noah to describe how people were living right up to the day the flood began. They were just going on with life as usual. They were eating and drinking. They were getting married, completely oblivious to the judgment that was coming. Well, Jesus then uses a second 
illustration from Genesis to further drive home the point. The illustration is from Lot. This illustration is from Lot. The first was Noah. This is Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew. Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And he lived in Sodom. He chose to live in that area. You may remember Abraham said, if you... You, you can take the land, whichever land you want. You can go this way and I'll go that way, or you go this way and I'll go that way. And so Lot chose the land that was much nicer, but it also contains Sodom, Gomorrah, and some of those places. Sodom was a very wicked and immoral place. And God, because of the immorality all that was going on there, God had decided that he had had enough of their wickedness. So he was going to destroy the city. Now, I want to just stop for a moment here and, and state sort of the obvious, but I, I really think it's important to state it. God's judgment upon sin is real. His judgment upon sin is real. Never in scripture do we see a God who just sweeps injustice and sinfulness under the rug and pretends like it's no big deal. Never, never do we see that. No, Jesus says he's going to deal with it. He's going to deal with it. Dealt with it on the cross, offering salvation. He's going to deal with it. Um, and for those who don't receive the call, all of that stuff, judgment is going to be done. Now, I know that for a lot of people, they find this idea of God's judgment being offensive. You know, they, 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 they just find it to be so offensive. And I get that because initially destroying Sodom and all this stuff, it feels so harsh. But let's just unpack this for a little bit here. Because if, if you find the concept of God's judgment upon sin to be offensive, if you find that to be offensive, let me just ask do you think sins like child abuse and murder and stealing and prejudice and rape should be punished? Do you think those things should be punished? And if so, why? I mean, if you're a loving person, wouldn't you just want those people to get off scot-free? Of course not. <laughs> of course not. See, the reality is for all of us, all of us here, long for justice to be done. We long for it. We long for justice. We want someone to make things right. And God is the only one that can do that. And he will do that. His kingdom is coming. So as Sodom is about to be destroyed, Jesus says that the people in the city were, verse 28, eating and drinking, Buying and selling, planting and building. Notice he is not listing their sins. He's not listing the sinful things they were doing. He's describing how they were just doing life, but completely oblivious to the coming judgment. See, Jesus' point in both of these examples, he's not focusing on the sinfulness of the people. What he's focusing on is that he's giving this clear warning to not be lulled to sleep by the day-to-day -day routine of life, eating, drinking, buying, selling, all that stuff. Don't be lulled to sleep by that so that we lose sight of the reality of God's kingdom coming. I mean, let's be honest. It is really easy to lose sight of the coming kingdom, right? It's so easy to lose sight of that, given the fact, especially given that it is taking so long. <laughs> I mean, and that's why I think Jesus warns us about this. He realizes there's going to be a fairly long season in which we are waiting, in which we are waiting for his kingdom to come. And in that waiting, it's going to be very easy for us to just get kind of lulled to sleep by the routine of life. 
just going through the motions every day, buying, selling, eating, drinking. We're just going through the motions of life. And we, it's easy to lose sight of his coming kingdom. So he's, he's warning us against this. It's what happened in Noah's day. It's what happened last day. Don't let it happen. Don't be lulled to sleep. Which leads to the third warning as we're waiting for God's kingdom to come. Don't be seduced by the world. Don't be seduced by the world. Let's look, look at what Jesus says next. Verse 31. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. So what happened to Lot's wife? This is a pretty weird story. Um, but Jesus is affirming the validity of it because he brings it up. So if, again, if you have an issue with that, take it up with him. I'm just reporting what's here, okay? So um, in Genesis 19, let me just tell you a little bit of the story there, more specific. So in Genesis 19, we read that as Lot, Lot was warned by God that this was going to happen. The angel, some angels told Lot, the city's going to be destroyed. You need to get your family out. And so Lot tried to get his family to, to leave the city. But, so was, and he, but he was having a hard time. Um, and, and, and he's kind of hesitating. He's having a hard time um, getting them out. Um, and, and, and so God sent some angels to kind of help this process happen. And so as they're leaving, finally, Lot and his family are leaving, the angels say to them, Genesis nineteen seventeen, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. Okay, so as they are fleeing the city and God is pouring out, they're there, they've left the city, God's pouring out his judgment. Lot's wife looks back at the city and she experiences God's judgment. She becomes a pillar of salt. I told you this is weird. Okay, um, so the question is, why did Lot's wife look back? Well, Jesus tells us in this passage, because of the, the, the passage, what he's saying here, he tells us, before mentioning Lot's wife, remember what he said. He describes a person who's on the rooftop when Jesus comes back, and, and they want to go down and get their possessions. That's the issue. See, Lot's wife's heart was back in the city. Her heart was back in the city. Her heart had been seduced by the pull of the world in that city. And so rather than fleeing God's judgment, she longed for what she was losing. She longed for what she was losing. And God's judgment ended up touching her as well as touching the city of, of Sodom. See, Jesus is using her as an example, not so that we'll worry about becoming salt pillars. I don't think that's the point here. Rather, so that we will recognize how strong the pull of the world is in our lives. This pull toward comfort and, and, and possessing and finding our life in these things. The pull of that is so strong. Our world tells us, constantly tells us, that accumulating things and setting our heart on things will bring life. But the opposite is the case. The world's lying to us. The, the opposite is the case, which is why Jesus says, look at this next verse, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life will preserve it. See, th this is the upside down kingdom right here. 
This is the upside down kingdom being described. This is the key to how we experience the kingdom of God in this life and in the next life. The more we try to preserve and hold on to the things we have on earth, the more we miss out on the kingdom of God. But the more fully or the more we freely choose to lose our life for Jesus' sake, to live with an open hand and then lose our life for Jesus' sake, the more we do that, the more fully we experience life in the kingdom, both here and in the future. This is the key right here to experiencing the kingdom. Now, there's a lot at stake in terms of how we, the, which choice we choose, which life we choose. A lot at stake. In fact, Jesus gives this very vivid description of this in the final verse of this passage. Look with me at verse 33. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in bed, in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. Where, Lord, they ask. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. I mean, talk about a gross image, right? Vultures picking at a corpse, but that's where the self-life will lead us. It leads us to the stench of death and destruction. It is the polar opposite of the life that Jesus offers us in the kingdom of God, the, the life he offers us when he is ruling and reigning in us. <laughs> that's the principle. It's, I guess it's maybe when we let go of our life on earth, our hands are open to receive all that he has for us. And when we're hanging on, we're missing out. Our hands aren't open. Our lives aren't open to receive his kingdom and all that he has for us. So that's why. This is the why question. Any passage we're looking at, like, why? Why would I want to choose that pill and not that pill? This is the why. <laughs> this vulture, vulture picture is a why. Why we ultimately want to choose the kingdom of God pill rather than what the world is offering. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we live in the reality of the kingdom of God, both in this life and in our waiting for the life to come? Well, it all goes back to our experience of the king. Our experience of Jesus. The kingdom of God is where Jesus is, right? The kingdom of God is where Jesus is. So do you want to experience more of the kingdom in this life than actively and joyfully surrender to your life to Jesus, the king? Make Jesus your passionate pursuit. Regularly remind your heart and soul of the truth that Jesus lives in you. His power and his presence live in you. No matter what you're going through, you are a carrier of the kingdom of God. Well, what about when we don't feel his presence? What about when we long for healing and it doesn't come? What about when our, our battles with, with disease or difficulty, they just feel overwhelming and wearying? We are worn out. What about then? Well, the answer is the same. We look to our king. We look to our king. We look to his promise coming and know that one day all will be made right. He, one day, he will restore the things that the enemy has destroyed and damaged. He will. See, that's what it looks like to live in this place of kingdom reality and kingdom hope. Kingdom reality, kingdom hope. It's to fix our hearts on Jesus. It is to run after him and pursue him as our first love. 
a friend of mine um, who a few years ago went through a, the whole cancer diagnosis thing and treatment. He emailed me an article this past week. It was written by uh, Pastor John Piper um, on the eve of his prostate cancer surgery. And the title of the article was this, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Don't Waste Your Cancer. It's very thought-provoking as he describes several ways that we can waste a cancer diagnosis. And I want to highlight one of his points in this article. This is what he said. He wrote this, You will waste your cancer if you think that beating cancer means staying alive rather than cherishing Christ. And then he explains what he means. Satan's and God's designs in your cancer are not the same. Satan designs to destroy your love for Christ. God designs to deepen your love for Christ. Cancer does not win if you die. It wins if you fail to cherish Christ. God's design is to wean you off the breast of the world and feast you on the sufficiency of Christ. It is meant to help you say and feel, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And to know, therefore, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Wow, what, what a powerful picture of what it looks like to live as people of the kingdom of God no matter what trials and difficulties we're facing. It is to live in this wonderful assurance that Jesus is here right now and that nothing that is happening to us is out of his reach or his sovereign purposes. Now, we can and should pray for healing, and we do it all the time around here, and we can and should pray for healing. We should. We should, we, we, we should use all the resources available to help us in, in the, in, to battle whatever challenge we're facing. Absolutely. But ultimately, even in using all those resources and all of that, ultimately realizing that our greatest longing is not beating cancer or overcoming whatever thing we're struggling with. No, no, no. Our greatest love is not even life itself, but is Jesus. It's Jesus cherishing him in this life and in the next. See, the kingdom of God is here and it is coming. And the closer we stay to the king, the more glorious both of those experiences will be. Let's pray. Now, I want to lead us in a, a few responses here to this passage. We're all about response here in this church. We, we want to give room and space to respond because that's where the difference is made. It's not just gathering information. It's responding. So first response, there may be some of you and what you need is Jesus the King living in you. You need God living in you. See, Jesus is a perfect gentleman. He doesn't force his way upon anyone. 
What he does, he says, I've paid the price for you. I paid for your sin. I am waiting. And he's inviting us, open your heart, place your trust in me, Jesus says. And when you do that, I will give you life and forgiveness. I will come live in you. But if you've never done that, if you've never said yes to Jesus, if you're trying to do it on your own, trying to be a good person, whatever, but you've never admitted to Jesus your need and that you want him to save you, then he doesn't live in you yet, but he can. And that's what I want to lead you in a prayer right now. There may be some of you here. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. It doesn't matter. If you understand what I'm saying, you can ask Jesus to come into your life. Jesus, the King, to come into your life forever. So if that's you, I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. Just pray this prayer in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that I'm trying to live on my own without you. And I realize that that Sin separates me from you. You're holy and I'm not. But I don't want to be separated from you. Even though there's nothing I could do to get to you, you came to me. You sent your son, Jesus, to earth. And Jesus, you died on a cross to pay for my sin. Thank you. I want you in my life, and I choose to receive you right now. I place my trust in you, Jesus. I bring you all my questions and doubts and fears and sins and failures and regrets. I bring all of that to you. In in exchange, I receive your life and your forgiveness and your very presence living in me. So now, Jesus, the King, change me from the inside out through the presence of your Spirit. God, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. I pray they would grow in this amazing relationship with you, living in them forever and ever. The second response I want to invite you into, and it's this response of the kingdom of God being here. Think think about that. The king lives within you. Jesus, the king, lives within you. What does it look like for you to to live in that confidence in him? You're a child of the king. He lives in you. He is with you. You are carrying his presence into whatever situation you find yourself, into what circumstance. You are carrying his presence wherever you go. Just think about that. Are you living that way? He will never leave you or forsake you. He lives in you. So God, I pray that we would live out of this reality more and more. This coming week, God, wherever we go, to work, to school, wherever we go, we would have this sense 
the king lives in me. I am a carrier of his kingdom wherever I go. So I pray for that confidence and to just to live that way and to impact how we live. And then the final response here, the third response, this kingdom of God is coming. There is a not yet dimension to the kingdom and that some of you are in right now, you feel it struggles, battles, challenges, maybe with your children, maybe in your life, maybe in relationships, you are in this place of difficulty and challenge. And you long for the kingdom of God to come and these things to be restored, but you're not there. That is not your reality right now. And I just want to ask you in that place, is your heart ultimately set upon Jesus no matter what happens. And just tell him in the quiet of your heart, that's where you want your heart to be. Cherishing him no matter what happens. So Jesus, we love you we cherish you. You are worth more to us than anything in this life or the next. We want this to be settled, that you are the center of our heart. You are our ultimate longing, even more than healing and restoration. You are our ultimate longing. So we love you. We love you. Just pour that love out into our hearts. Holy Spirit, stir it up as we worship. Stir it up. This greater love for you, our King Jesus. We praise you. We love you. We cherish you more than anything else. So we want to continue this prayer response with some songs of worship that have been prayerfully chosen to meet us right where we are here in our hearts and move us just into a greater place of love and deepening love for Jesus. So why don't, why don't we stand, whatever campus you're at, go ahead and stand if you're able to do that. If you want to sit down at some point, that's totally cool. But this is about the Lord Jesus. So we love you. Set us free, Jesus, to worship you. Thank you, Lord.